welcome, 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 or welcome back to Secret Police, the podcast where we explore the history and methods of the world's most brutal secret police forces. Today, I bring you part two of our series on Russian secret police, with this episode diving into the Okhrana. The idea of the Okhrana was born out of the Decemberist revolution that sparked the formation of a secret police force organized to protect the Tsar and infiltrate revolutionary groups. We will explore the techniques the Okhrana developed to survey groups hostile to the government, look at how the Okhrana uh, tried and ultimately failed to combat the impending Soviet storm, and look at how historical figures, or look at some historical figures who, you might be surprised to find out, either were or may have been Okhrana agents. You'll recognize many modern uh, undercover policing techniques employed by the Tsar's Okhrana. So buckle up and get ready. Happy thoughts and good feelings can be stowed away in the overhead bins. Dark humor is stored under your seat cushion. Grab a warm coat and a pair of boots for our exile to Siberia. I mean, a holiday in Siberia. Hear me absolutely butcher these Russian names in this uh, next part on Russian secret police. You don't need to listen to part one of this series since each part will be mostly independent of the others for the most part. Um, I want to acknowledge my main source for this episode was a book by uh, Ronald Hingley called Russian Secret Police, how appropriately named. Also, I'm doing something a little different today. I have a companion with me, a bottle of Belvedere uh, vodka, import of Poland. Unfortunately, Trader Joe's didn't have Ukrainian vodka, but here we are. I haven't opened this yet, uh, or try and tried it. Um, so here we go. Let's see how this is. If I can open it. A little extra there. Probably sounded more. Probably sounded like a lot more than <laughs> than I actually poured. Okay, let's see how this is. Oh, that's good. Um, okay. <laughs> it's going to be an interesting episode. I'm going to take a, I'm going to take vodka breaks periodically while we're recording. Okay. For starters, let's rewind for a moment to the end of the Oprichniki, the secret police force we talked about in part one. Check it out. If you haven't, the Oprichniki was disbanded in 1572 in response to the burning down of Moscow. Their master, Tsar Ivan the Terrible himself would die in 1584. Ivan, with his first wife, Anastasia Romanova, uh, had, had several children, some of which tragically died in childhood. He had two sons who survived childhood, Tsarevich Ivan Ivanovich and Fyodor Ivanovich. As discussed in part one, Ivan the Terrible murdered uh, Tsarevich Ivan in a fit of rage, leaving the throne with no heir and leaving the door open to the end of the Rurik dynasty in Russia. Though Ivan had another surviving son, he was not uh, fit for the crown, as you'll see in a moment. Uh, so that's as far as part one took us. Now, as I said, Ivan's second son, Fyodor, uh, well, not as I said, but Fyodor actually took the reins of power in 1584, the same year um, that his bear-loving psychopath father of his, uh, Ivan the Terrible, died. We... He was quite unlike his father 
in that he seemed to actually follow his faith, spending many hours in prayer and contemplation. Feodor also enjoyed visiting different churches, and he did not care to feed people to bears. So that's good. Unfortunately, Feodor was apparently cursed with ill health and grew up physically weak. He was apparently, quote, feeble-minded and was thus in no state of mind to run a government. Fortunately for Feodor, in 1580, he married Irina Gudanova, the sister of a man named Boris Gudanov. Boris came from a noble Tatar family and made his career in the court of Ivan the Terrible. He married the daughter of one of Ivan's close associates and succeeded in working his way into the boyar class. Boris was successful enough that Ivan the Terrible entrusted him with looking after Feodor. Upon Feodor's ascension to the throne, Boris was more in charge of the day-to-day and responsible for Russia's accomplishments during Feodor's czardom. If Feodor was the CEO, Boris was like the COO or the chief operating officer. He kept the ship sailing. And sail it did. Under Boris, Russia was successful in several military campaigns. Boris promoted, uh, or yeah, Boris promoted foreign trade, constructed several defensive outposts, exerted Moscow's influence in Siberia, and established the head of the Muscovite church as patriarch. It wasn't all sunshine and rainbows for Boris, though, because Russia really started entering a turbulent period in its history. The death of Feodor in 1598 left Boris in an awkward position because no more Feodor meant no more Rurik dynasty. It was the end of an era. Boris's competence and list of major achievements worked in his favor to maintain power, and he was elected to the throne in 1598 by a council of clergy and service gentry called the Zemsky Sobor, or quote, Assembly of Land. They thought uh, Boris Gudanov was good enough. Service gentry, by the way, are people who were bestowed land, serfs, and other property assets by the Tsar as payment for favors. So, so Boris went on to sort of liberalize or open up uh, part of Russia by allowing students to be educated in Western Europe and allowed the establishment of Lutheran churches inside a largely Orthodox Christian nation. The Boyar class, however, of which Boris had belonged, got boned again, just like they did in part one. In order to check their power, Boris had many of them exiled or banished, including members of the future ruling family, the Romanovs. Boris himself employed some sort of, or some kind of spy network to weed out people suspected of treason, treason, suspected of treason, though I couldn't find the name of this group of spies, assuming they had a name. It's almost like they went back to rule by fear under Ivan the Terrible. Same horse droppings, different century. Not even different century. Just same decade. Same horse droppings, same decade. Prosecution against the Boyars only fueled their resentment towards Boris because, of course it did. Russian discontent with Boris expanded in the wake of famine and epidemics. Luckily for Boris, his popular support increased when a jerk claiming to be Tsarevich Dmitry Ivanovich rallied foreign forces against Russia, including Cossacks or, or Southern Slavic peoples and Polish armies. Who is this guy, Dmitry Ivanovich? I mentioned Ivan the Terrible had some children die in childhood. 
For example, I, Ivan had a son named Dmitri with his first wife, Anastasia Romanova. Uh, sadly, that Dmitri uh, did die around the age of two. Ivan had another son with his eighth wife, Maria Nagaya, who they also named Dmitri. So he was Tsarevich Dmitri Ivanovich. Upon Fyodor's death, upon Theodor's, uh, death Tsarevich Dmitri should have become Tsar. Not Boris Goodenough, since Dmitri was the actual offspring of Ivan. Boris Goodenough, however, liked power and wanted to keep it. He had Tsarevich Dmitri and his family exiled to a town called Urglich uh, near Moscow. Then Dmitri died in 1591 under mysterious circumstances at the age of eight. Many theories have been presented to explain Dmitri's death, including that old bastard Boris Goodenough ordered him to be unalived. Rumors floated around that Boris that Boris's aforementioned spy ring killed Dmitri. These rumors were not quelled by the official investigation, which, according to author uh, Ronald Hingley, quote, concluded that Dmitri had died accidentally, having suffered an, epilect- an epileptic fit while playing with a knife. Now, I'm no detective. Hell, I can't even find things in my own refrigerator. But I call BS on that one. That sounds... Like those TikToks where the caption says, every time I try to eat healthy and somebody tries to reach for a piece of fruit, but they trip and land conveniently next to a platter of fried food. It's like Tsarevich Dmitri picked up a, a chef's knife to chop beets and he tripped and the knife stabbed him 37 times in the chest and uh, painted um, Boris was here in blood next to the body. What a horrible accident. That reminds me of how when when Putin orders a hit, the, the Kremlin's version is that the victim must have bound their own hands behind their back, placed themselves in a garbage bag, and shot themselves in the back of the head, you know, to commit suicide. Anyway, some say Dmitri's death was a genuine accident, or it was a murder. Whatever the case, people in Erglich wouldn't, uh, or weren't buying the official cause of Dmitri's death as an accident and blamed Mr. Goodenough. To suppress the rumors, Goodenough had his agents hunt down the people questioning the official narrative and cut out their tongues, which would have obviously been the end of oral communication for people, or for a poor peasant who probably couldn't write. Not to mention the wound probably became infected with the only treatment option being cutting-edge 17th century Russian medicine. Even the principal investigator of Dmitri's death, Vasily Shoisky, disavowed and reavowed his confirmation of Dmitri's death seven different times over the next 15 years. If Dmitri survived, he'd be the rightful heir to the throne being a child of Ivan the Terrible and a direct threat to Boris's rule. I think I said that. I blame the vodka. Uh, Speaking of which, vodka break. Mm. Usually, usually I find vodka kind of hard to drink, but this stuff is pretty smooth. Um, so, so actually, this would have threatened Boris even being appointed as czar since this sketchy incident with the murder happened 
before his election by the Zemsky Sobor in 1598. So when this rando came along claiming to be Dmitri, Boris wasn't buying it, and probably because he knew he had the real one killed. Therefore, this imposter became known as False Dmitri. False Dmitri and his armies attempted a march on Moscow in 1604. Boris himself died suddenly in 1605, and he was succeeded by his 16-year-old son, Feodor II. If you guys remember the show Rocky and Bullwinkle, one of the villains was named Boris Badenov. Uh, so his name is a play on words with the real Boris Gudenov. In 1606, Russia descended into a chaotic period known as the Time of Troubles, which was characterized by a foreign invasion, social discontent, violent regime change, and civil war. It was a colossal calamity, to say the least. And unfortunately for Feodor, uh, false Dmitri was um, successful in his march on Moscow. In the ensuing chaos of Moscow's capture, Feodor II was murdered only weeks into his reign. False Dmitri then took the throne by force. However, only a year later, in, or only a year into his rule, False Dmitri himself was deposed, slaughtered, and torn apart. His body was burned, and his ashes were stuffed into a cannon and fired in the direction of Poland from whence he came. Brutal. Remember the, the grade A investigator of Tsarevich Dmitri's suspicious death, Vasily Shoisky? He took over after False Dmitri was yeeted towards Poland in confetti form. Shoisky ruled from 1606 until 1610 when Moscow was captured and occupied by Poland. But Choisky himself was captured, and the Poles made him wear a white smock, which is like a, a dress or blouse, and they hauled his ass away in an open carriage to Warsaw like a trophy. Meanwhile, the Poles occupied Moscow for two years until 1612, when they were dislodged from the city. Finally, Tsar Michael, the first Tsar of the House of Romanov, took the throne. This dynasty lasted from 1613 until the Bolshevik Revolution in 1917. Russia had many Tsars in 300 years, and the nation itself changed culturally and geog uh, geographically as different Tsars had different ambitions for the Russian Empire. Notable Tsars just from my memory include like Peter the Great and, and Catherine the Great. Uh, Peter the Great had the city of St. Petersburg constructed during his reign and declared it the capital city. No longer was Russian influence exerted from Moscow for the time being. St. Petersburg today is Russia's second largest city with a population of about 5.5 million in 2020. That's somewhere between the populations of New York City and Los Angeles in 2020. It's a big place. I'm not going to cover every czar because there's plenty of great content on the Russian czars um, already, and that would take way too long um, to cover. So we'll only discuss the czars most relevant to the development of secret police. So where are the secret police in all this? According to author Ronald Hingley, Russia lacked a formal institutionalized political police force between the end of the Oprichnina until Peter the Great's establishment of the Priobrazhinsky office, which was tasked with investigating political subversion. Uh, a possible exception to this would be Boris Godunov's spies. 
in my view, maybe political police played a minor role for the czars because there weren't as many serious threats to their rule until the 19th century. One thing I observed in my research of this topic is that in the time between the Oprichniki and the Okrana, there wasn't a force that rivaled either institution's infamy or legendary status. So what I'm saying is there wasn't a force that lived up to the legendary brutality of the Oprichniki. Also, during this time, Russia enjoyed expansion and cultural change, as I mentioned. This doesn't mean there weren't Russians like like the serfs who were unhappy with the system, but they were powerless to change it. Obviously, something changed to warrant the czar's establishment of a more pervasive and heavy-handed secret police institution. And the event that inspired the creation of a secret police force was the Decembrist Revolt. Now, the revolt has its origins in Napoleon Bonaparte's invasion of Russia. Um, I'm going to be brief about this invasion to keep things moving. And again, to keep things moving. And again, there's tons of content out there about Napoleon's invasion of Russia. Vodka break. If you have your own, you can drink with me. Just not while you're driving, unless it's non-alcoholic. Under under the leadership of Tsar Alexander I, the Russians were successful in not just repelling the French, but uh, pushing Napoleon's Grand Armée back to Paris itself in 1814. But pushing Napoleon back to France exposed the common person serving in the Russian army to Europe and the, and the West, as it was at that time. Plenty of food, fancy-looking buildings, and coffee shops with free Wi-Fi. Simply put, Russian soldiers became painfully aware of Russia's backwardness socially, politically, and economically, according to Hingley. Frankly, they saw how far ahead Western Europe was compared to their own mother Russia. Uh, Some in the Russian occupying forces wanted to bring Western ideas back to Russia after the war. And they didn't just want to remove the Tsar. They wanted to install a constitutional government and abolish serfdom, basically to liberalize Russia. I'm not sure if Alexander I anticipated this, but when his victorious army returned from defeating Napoleon, they were treated quite poorly. They were forced to partake in a rapid increase in military parades and drills. Soldiers continued to face beatings and mandatory conscription of at least 25 years, after which they would return to their lives as serfs. Not exactly a sweet deal for military service. Imagine if you fought bravely and valiantly for your country as a, as a conscript. You helped repel a dangerous aggressor from your land and brought the fight to the enemy. Then when you return home, you're given no special treatment or thanks. You're forced to partake in more drills, beatings. And then when you're done with your service, there are no retirement benefits, no GI Bill, no future job opportunities, no support for battlefield trauma. You just return to your life of toil on a frozen field as a serf, propping up the wealth of the czar. That would piss me off. I might be a tad upset about such bleak prospects. Not surprisingly, there was growing dissatisfaction among the uh, Russian officer class, and they formed secret societies. Things 
had to be hush-hush from other officers and commanders outside these secret groups who didn't feel the same desire to liberalize Russia. Among the officers who wanted a different form of government, two schools of thought formed. One faction in the capital, St. Petersburg, which was less radical in its politics, and a much more radical faction in Moscow led by an officer named Colonel Pestel. The groups were called the Northern and Southern Conspirators, respectively. Northerners were for a constitutional monarchy and Southerners were for a Russian republic, but believed it was necessary to murder the Tsar and his family. We have some foreshadowing here of what the Bolsheviks would do in the 20th century. These military groups opposing Tsarist rule were called the Decemberists because the attempted coup occurred in December 1825. But unlike the Bolsheviks, they were not successful. Leading the revolt, uh, or leading up to the revolt, Alexander I did receive many reports about the, the plots to overthrow him, and the, the conspirators could have been arrested, but Alexander I died on November 19th, 1825. The Tsar's death did provide the Decemberists with a unique opportunity that likely would not occur again, to launch the coup while the government was void of a czar. And for 17 days, the Russian government was without, a, without clear leadership. Not sure if Alexander's oldest uh, brother Constantine or his second oldest brother Nicholas would take the throne. Ultimately, it would be Nicholas. Nicholas I anticipated the coup, and the government tried to negotiate with the Decemberists. When negotiations didn't work, Nicholas I ordered the rebels uh, parading around the Senate Square in St. Petersburg be destroyed with artillery. The southern conspirators in Moscow were destroyed only uh, only a few weeks later. Um, I find it interesting an interesting coincidence that the two major revolts in Russian history took place when uh, Nicholas was in power. We'll we'll get to Nicholas this in the second later in this episode. Vodka break. Now we should understand where Nicholas I is coming from here. As a boy, Nicholas witnessed the assassination of his father, Tsar Paul I of Russia. Paul I was um, likely assassinated because of the proposed extension of greater freedoms to serfs, an idea that generally alienated the nobility. Paul's assassination ushered in the Tsardom of Paul's oldest son, Alexander I, who uh, defeated Napoleon. Given that experience, Nicholas I was determined to keep tabs on discontent and dissent among the Russian people and squash rebellion wherever it flared up in his massive empire that at this point spanned from Poland to Alaska, incorporated Finland and Central Asia. It's a big place. But even more significant is that the Decemberist revolt paved the way for the Tsar's extensive use of secret police forces, a tradition carried on by the Soviets and today's Russian Federation. Tsar Nicholas started with interrogating the Decemberist rebels the very night the revolt was put down. Yes, Nicholas himself performed some of the interrogations. Arrested Decemberists were brought to face Nicholas himself and their hand, with their hands bound, of course. The Tsar proved to be in, a, in an an effective interrogator, a, a skill probably obtained from his time in the military. Nicholas approached different prisoners differently. 
he shouted and threatened some while expressing sympathy for others. Now, normally those being interrogated are the ones deprived of sleep, with few breaks between brutal questioning. However, with Nicholas, he was the one staying up all night performing interrogations round the clock. Nicholas ended up interrogating at least 150 arrested persons. Clearly, he was very hands-on, or he was a very hands-on czar and interrogator to the point of micromanaging. He, delega- he delegated the arrests uh, or the arrestees' punishments based on their level of involvement in the revolt. He personally specified the, the kind and size of shackles conspirators should be bound in as well, and how tightly. I see Nicholas like holding up a pair of steel anklets to his face, carefully inspecting them, and he's like, yes, I, th- I think Boris can go in this one. Um, do they come in different colors? Pink? Boris loves pink. Are any of them fuzzy? I promised him pretty colors for imprisonment. He was absolutely determined to weed out every last ounce of conspiracy from Russia. Ultimately, it is estimated that approximately 3,000 persons were arrested in connection with the revolt. Some of the prisoners did end up getting sent to the frozen waste of Siberia, which would absolutely suck frozen balls, but was nothing like the Soviet gulags of future decades. Nicholas felt confident he'd rid Russia of Decemberists, but he wasn't satisfied with actively looking for uh, a simmering resentment towards the Tsar. Or excuse me, he wasn't satisfied with not actively looking for simmering resentment towards the Tsar. Nicholas recruited General Alexander Beckendorf, a man of Baltic German origin who fought in the Napoleonic Wars. He apparently had a lackadaisical attitude and was known for being absent-minded and occasionally forgot his own name. According to Hingley, he was a, quote, ladies' man, and, or a ladies' man who was neither particularly attractive nor particularly intelligent. Nicholas looked at his resume and thought, he's perfect. Initially, Beckendorf uh, rejected Nicholas's idea to create a secret police force, saying, quote, secret police force in, uh, terrifies honest men, but is detected by scoundrels, end quote. I think uh, Beckendorf figured Nicholas was going to create a secret police force no matter what. So Beckendorf recommended such forces be both feared and respected because of the, quote, moral qualities of their chief. Uh, Beckendorf promised his uh, promised this new office um, Beckendorf promised this new office should be combined or should combine the Ministry of Police and Inspectors of the Gendarmes a gendarme is basically an armed police officer according to Marion Webster Nicholas wasn't having it though he didn't want a combined department but rather a governmental structure directly under his control. So he instead established a uh, established his new secret police organization as part of his personal chancellery by secret decree or ukaz. On July 3rd, 1826, the third section was born, a precursor to the future Okrana. The third section got its name for having been the third appendage of Nicholas I's chancellery. The chancellery was made up of several 
sections or offices that perform different tasks for the czar, such as preparing orders, writing legislation, or managing domestic matters. Um, uh, Benkendorf was appointed as the third section's head, as well as chief of the gendarmes. There is a story that uh, Benkendorf asked Nicholas I for a specific mandate or directive or directive of the third section, uh, secret police. Apparently, Nicholas handed Benkendorf a handkerchief and said, quote, here is all the directive you need. The more tears you wipe away with this handkerchief, the more faithfully you will serve my aims, end quote. Now stop bothering me, Ben. I'm, I'm trying to squeeze Boris into a pair of pink fuzzy handcuffs. It's Nikki's private time. Run along and wipe up those tears now. <sighs> Goodness. Vodka break. The <laughs> third section was responsible for political security within the civilian and military populations in Russia. These units were considered um, higher police who could or who concerned themselves with politics, whereas lower police still concerned themselves with everyday crime and remained part of uh, Russia's Ministry of the Interior. These higher police forces consisted of two groups, the Corps of Gendarmes and the Third Section. Gendarmes were more of a military unit. Members were recruited only from the military and wore a military uniform of a, of a blue tunic and white gloves, sweet drip. There were something like eight or 9,000 members of the gendarmes. In contrast, the third section consisted of only about 40 civilians in plain, clo- uh, in plain uh, contemporary clothes, much more secret police-like. On an operational level, the third section was uh, centralized more inside major cities like Moscow and St. Petersburg, but the gendarmes were scattered all over the empire in places like Vladivostok, Baku, and Irkutsk. The gendarmes employed uh, local agents in those far-flung villages or towns uh, and, and, um, or villages and towns in Russia to spy and inform on locals in those distant pockets of population. And for some reason, many of the gendarmes spoke French. New agents were at- attracted with excellent pay and special privileges, but many were deterred by the fact the the job involved clandestine uh, political police work. Gendarmes also investigated currency counterfeiting, kept tabs on religious religious groups, and enforced uh, censorship of anything deemed anti-Czarist. In the 1840s, the gendarmes uh, uh, policed the railway project where workers constructed a rail line between St. Petersburg and Moscow. This uh, started a tradition of gendarmes being employed as railway police, at least, uh, at least during the czarist times. Here's some more interesting interrogations uh, techniques. Prisoners were often <laughs> offered tea or a cigar before interrogations. All right, Alexei, uh, we know you are plotting to assassinate our glorious leader, Nicholas I. And we know you weren't alone, Alexei. We need the names of your friends. And if you don't tell us, well, how you say, we have ways of making you talk. We can start with pulling out your toenails. We can chain you up uh, a bit too tight, spread eagle for a few days in the dark. Or Vlad over here loves the red hot knife. Think about it, Alexei. It's your choice, yeah? 
Um, but before we begin, can I can I get you anything? Tea, cigar. Oleg's wife bakes the best chocolate chip cookies. I I can bring uh, bring you one from the break room. They're to die for. <laughs> get it? <laughs> uh, I also got soda, water, coffee. Um, are you lactose intolerant, Alexei? We got almond milk creamer. I, I wouldn't want your stomach to get irritated. We accommodate dietary restrictions here. Um, anytime during interrogation, uh, you scream the safe word and we'll get you something tasty, okay? Now for some specifics about the third section. Though the third section was smaller, it was clear they were more important and more powerful. They quickly outranked other governmental institutions by the grace of handcuff expert Nicholas I. The third section even exercised power over their military counterparts, the gendarmes. The third section kept tabs on foreigners inside Russia. Visitors to Russia were under constant surveillance by third section agents. In 1833, an American envoy was sent to Russia by U.S. President Andrew Jackson. One diplomat reported to the uh, president that, quote, you can scarcely hire a servant who is not an agent of the secret police, end quote. Another American diplomat noted he could tell the third section monitored his mail since the letters were crudely resealed with wax of a different color than the original seal. I, I feel like they were just trying to send a message that the mail was being monitored, like showing the Americans they could. Um, that or it was just sloppy work. The third section also employed early bugging devices. Excuse me. One English woman noted a large stack of uh, wood that was piled up outside her her hotel room with a space for a person to crouch and keep her under observation. Uh, yeah, creepy. I think that has less to do with spying and more to do with just straight up peeping. It was also extremely difficult for foreigners to leave Russia. Regulations required a person to give notice to depart Russia by advertising their intention to do so uh, no fewer than three days in the newspaper. Russians abroad were also closely monitored on their foreign journeys. One informant wrote, quote, in the drawing rooms of London and Paris, the traveling Russian dreads that the eye of the secret police may be upon him, end quote. Even the spies had spies. It's like a Russian nesting doll of surveillance. A tourist, a tourist is watched by a spy, while the second spy, or while a second spy, watches the first spy. Crazy. The third section existed from 1826 until 1880. Within that time, they processed many thousands of reports, petitions, and denunciations from citizens all over the vastness of the Russian Empire. Their leader, Alexander Beckendorf, died in 1844. The job of the third section's chief went to um, Alexis Orlov, who apparently had no experience in secret police work or espionage. Orlov's appointment was curious, though, because he was the brother of one of the Decemberists, but Tsar Nicholas was willing to look the other way. Was the third section successful in their mission? Mm, yes. Uh, Nicholas faced a Polish rebellion in 1830, and 
uh, a revolt in Novgorod in 1831. Both were stamped out by the Russian military, and I imagine intelligence was collected by the third section. Smaller scale conspiracies were also squashed. For example, one plot was organized by a group called the um, Kritsky brothers in, Mots- in Moscow. The group plotted to kill the czar and his family and amassed a stash of weapons uh, or of the weapons necessary to carry out the attack. However, uh, undercover third section agents uh, out, out, uh, outed the conspirators who were arrested and uh, off to Siberia they went. So we see the third section laying a foundation and route to the Okrana. Nicholas I died in March 1855 and was succeeded by his son, Alexander II, whose mutton chops rivaled those of late 19th century U.S. presidents. There was reason to believe Alexander II was going to be more liberal than his handcuff-wielding father. Alexander II relaxed prior censorship measures and announced his intention to abolish serfdom. Alexander II ushered in a number of governmental and legal changes, including enacting a jury system, rights against arbitrary search and seizure, and a Russian bar association. Many of these legal reforms were based on Western models. Unfortunately, despite legal reforms, the administration retained their their powers of extrajudicial yeah extra judicial law enforcement excuse me there uh notably alexander ii did not abolish the third section but they lost much of their prior uh prominence the third section wasn't completely unused though since revolutionary fervor was alive and well in russia and would only get worse in the future for example There was another Polish revolt in 1863, growing unrest among the peasants in rural Russia and discontent among the young, educated class in the cities. Young people with radical new ideas were threats to the Tsar. Long-haired, hippie Russian intelligentsia formed opposition groups, one of which which was called the Nihilists. In May 1862, a series of fires ignited in St. Petersburg. And the government attributed the, um, the arsons to the nihilists. Soon it became forbidden to practice or host um, gatherings in public or private for fear young people were exchanging radical ideas. Even the St. Petersburg Chess Club was shut down because it was a hotbed for anti-government sentiment. Another secret society called Hell formed the, uh, for, uh, let's see, formed with the goal of assassinating Tsar Alexander II. One of Hell's members, a guy named Dmitry Karakazov, uh, who was a student until he was expelled from two different universities, got a hold of firearms to get the job done. Then Karakazov um, also, also authored a manifesto explaining why he had to kill the Tsar and how he was going to do it. His manifesto was discovered by the St. Petersburg governor general's office, but uh, oddly enough, no action was taken to prevent Karakazov's attack. On April 4th, 1866, Alexander II was enjoying a walk in the Summer Garden Park in St. Petersburg. Leaving the gardens, Alex was about to mount the horse-drawn carriage when Karakazov ambushed, ambushed the Tsar 
of firing his revolver and he missed. Karakazov was detained by bystanders and hauled to third section headquarters. The third section reported to Tsar Alexander that all means would be used to extract information from the assailant. Karakazov Karakazov's interroga- interrogation, gosh, the vodka. <sighs> um, Karakazov's inter- interrogation included sleep deprivation, food dep- deprivation, threats of torture, and a rather unusual form of torment. Hingley describes this as, quote, obtrusive ministrations of an Orthodox priest who plagued the prisoner with religious ex- exoneration and ritual, end quote. Basically, this means the priest would show up frequently, unannounced, and at a bad time. And there was nothing Karakazov could do about it. Imagine you're sleep-deprived, you've had no food for a few days, uh, been subject to long periods of questioning. The guards toss you back in your cell and they tell you you have two hours before your next interrogation. You let out a sigh of relief and think maybe you can curl up on the stone floor and get some sleep because you're absolutely exhausted. Maybe you've only had two hours of sleep total in the last two days. Just as you lay your head down, you hear, Hey, Dimitri, rise like the son of God, my child. I bring blessings upon you. And a hilarious story Father Sergei told me yesterday. Get up, let's talk, and then pray. And you're like, for the love of God, man, did you bring any food? And the priest says, real sustenance comes from scripture, my son. Or maybe the priest had a knack for showing up every time Dmitri tried to take a prison dump. Whatever they did to him, Karakazov went insane and provided the authorities with information leading to hundreds more arrests. Dmitri was later executed in October 1866. In many ways, the assassination attempt actually made things worse for ordinary Russians because after this attempt on his life, Alexander II's attention diverted from liberal reform to staying alive. Seems like a normal reaction, I think, for most of us uh, if we had been in his position. In response to the assassination attempt, the leader of the third section, Prince Dolgor. Ukov, Dol, hmm, Dolgorukov, resigned from the position. Alexander II appointed Count Peter Shuvalov as chief of the gendarmes and controller of the third section. With Shuvalov in this position, he was able to appoint his close friend, General Fyodor Trepov, as police chief of St. Petersburg. And these guys were like a dream team of policing uh, and acquired unmatched power. In 1867, there was a second assassination attempt against Alex, this time in Paris. He and the third section are realizing at this point the threats are far and wide. Tsar Alex would gradually become more uh, insulated literally and figuratively, by his secret police. Possibly the real leaders of Russia at this time were this good cop, bad cop duo, Shuvalov and Trepov. However, the glory days of the third section were coming to an end. In 1874, uh, or 1874 marked the beginning of a steep decline. Why did this happen? Well, a, a combination of bad leadership and revolutionary activity. Revolutionaries had been adapting to the third section's tactics, excuse me, and established 
clandestine organizations largely in cities. It seems like revolutionaries didn't gain much traction in rural Russia, however. Uh, a sort of headquarters called Land of Freedom was created between 1867 through 1879. Revolutionaries were also uh, learning some of the third section's methods, which makes me wonder if agents sympathetic to the revolution uh, or to revolutionary groups taught them a thing or two. We'll talk more about revolutionary infiltration uh, much more later in this episode. On January 30th, 1879, or 1878, a revolutionary named Ivan Kowalski attempted to kill police chief Trepov. Kowalski owned an illegal printing press in Odessa in Ukraine and advocated for violence against the czarist regime. Predictably, the other revolutionaries took um, Kowalski's advice to heart. On February 1st, 1878, revolutionaries killed a police informant named Akim Nikonov. Uh, other police officials were also attacked and some others were killed. In 1879, uh, another attack occurred in St. Petersburg where 23-year-old assassin Leon Mursky rode his horse alongside an official's carriage and fired two shots at General Alexander Del uh, Dentel. Um, so many different Alexanders in this episode. It, th it threw me off in the research. The general, the general wasn't hit and uh, ordered the driver to pursue Mursky, who got away. But uh, Mursky was arrested several weeks later and sentenced to, quote, uh, penal servitude for life, end quote, according to Hingley. Uh, he was probably sent to Siberia. And for the life of me, I had to try really hard there to pronounce uh, uh, penal and not penile, which is something else. Uh, Mirsky, you are hereby sentenced to life of penile servitude. Uh, penile servitude is what teenage boys do. Anyway, uh, three weeks following Mirsky's attack, there was another attempt on the Tsar. This was the third assassination attempt, if you're keeping track at home. Maybe the Tsar's security detail had let their guard down since the previous assassination attempts at the Summer Garden was 11 years prior. A revolutionary named Alexander Solovyov caught uh, Tsar Alexander on his walk outside the Winter Palace in St. Petersburg. Solovyov fired at his target and missed. He was, of course, caught and publicly executed by hanging. Tsar Alexander was getting really fed up with the third section's apparent incompetence. Meanwhile, revolutionaries were hatching new schemes and organizing, or reorganizing. The group Land of Freedom was disbanded, and a new, more radical group rose from the ashes called the People's Will. The word peoples gives them a, a bit more of a proletarian flair. Uh, People's Will met in August 1879 at an undisclosed location and pledged the death of Alexander II. The, the two prominent leaders in the People's Will were Alexander Zhelyabov and the even more infamous Sofia Perovsky. The group, more so than any revolutionary group before, had embraced terrorism to achieve their goals. They destroyed and even uh, 
Oh, excuse me. Okay, so they destroyed and even mined railroad tracks, especially the line between Moscow and Crimea, uh, the line that the Tsar frequently used. In November 1879, the People's Will was successful in blowing up one of the trains in Moscow, but the Tsar was not on board at the time, so the People's Will only managed to cause an inconvenient traffic jam. Following the Tsarist attacks in Moscow, police raided various locations around St. Petersburg and found floor maps of the Tsar's Winter Palace in various or with various and indiscernible markings scribbled on them. Uh, obviously, this raised a red flag, and the third section warned Alexander II that there could be another assassination attempt. Since the third section found maps of the palace itself, they wanted to thoroughly search the entire building for anything suspicious, but the Tsar wasn't having it. If you haven't seen or been to the Winter Palace in St. Petersburg, it is a massive complex, built to look like a palace in Versailles. So, the architecture is very French. Uh, it has 1,500 elaborately decorated rooms and sits right on the Neva River. The Winter Palace is over 645,000 square feet. The average American home is only about uh, 2,200 square feet. And for my American listeners, you could fit about 11 football fields in the Winter Palace's square footage. Uh, nowadays, the palace is used as the state Heritage Museum. It's a it's a ridiculously lavish residence for the Tsar, you know. While millions of serfs uh, toiled on farms with barely insulated, crude shacks for housing, the Tsar's method of or the Tsar's method to combat terrorism was to order administrative change. He ousted Third Section Chief General uh, Drenteln and appointed Count. Mikhail Loris Melikov as chairman of the Supreme Executive Commission in February 1880. In March 1880, Count Loris Melikov took personal control of the third section and the gendarmes. Don't feel bad for General Druntel. He was, um, he was an anti-Semitic bastard. He was. Uh, more on that later. The third section underwent a lengthy investigation that revealed they'd been a bunch of very naughty secret policemen. Uh, like that one person you know at work who never does anything, but takes frequent breaks. I important documents and uh, cases were missing. There was a backlog of over 1,000 cases under review. Thousands more Russian subjects were in exile for some loose connection to terrorism, while Sofia Perovsky found it easy to evade the gendarmes, uh, supported terrorism, and, spoiler alert, succeeded in killing Alexander II. So, simply put, the third section rounded up many of the wrong people and failed to apprehend the actually competent and dangerous revolutionaries like Sofia Perovsky. Disorga disorganization and lack of coordination uh, were normal among Alexander II's police ranks. The gendarmes had their own list of suspects, uh, separate from the third sections, uh, separate from the third sections list, and and both like, competed with the local police in Saint Petersburg. That's what I call a bureaucratic brawl. Uh, a lot of competition there. Count Loris uh, Melikov said, "To hell with this," and in his report 
wrote, quote, the czar of the Russian land, the master of 90 million subjects could not consider himself safe in his own residence, end quote. Uh, the Count uh, Loris Melikov issued an ukaz, or decree, on August 6, 1880, officially disbanding the third section and assigned their tasks to a newly formed Department of State Police. The reformation and rebranding of the secret police didn't change the overall mandate to keep tabs on revolutionaries and protect the czar. In fact, under Count Loris Melikov, activities became more clandestine and sneakier. Um... One uh, agent who transferred from the third section to the Department of State Police was a clerk named Klatochnikov, who was an undercover agent in the People's Will, but he was informing the revolutionaries of police activity. Klatochnikov provided the People's Will with lists of agents and police informers and provided the PW, or the People's Will, uh, advanced warning of police raids. But the police had their own agents inside the PW and other revolutionary circles as well. There was infiltration on both sides, and the cost of being caught was your life. In one instance, police agent Reinstein uh, uh, posed as a revolutionary and informed the police of of an illegal printing press. And if I don't explain this, if I didn't explain this earlier, uh, printing presses were targets because those machines produced alternative media and revolutionaries subsequently published these anti-Tsarist materials. The modern equivalent would be, say, a, a certain government uh, cracking down on Facebook and uh, other Western media so the public receives only the government's voice and version of events. So, Reinstein informed the cops about a printing press. The cops raided the location, shut down the press, and arrested some of the operators. Now, it appears that Reinstein also knew the identity of Klatochnikov, but Klatochnikov was one step ahead of Reinstein. And Reinstein was invited invited to an, an, an air quotes, revolutionary meeting in an empty apartment building where Reinstein was murdered. The People's Will then published about Reinstein's death in their paper, thumbing their noses at the Department of State Police, who, well, more like flipping the police, the Russian double-headed bird, if you catch my drift there. Such a public notification of an undercover officer's death established the punishment of death as a commonplace uh, consequence for police officers posing as revolutionaries, if caught. Another case, or in another case, a revolutionary assassin named Grigory Goldenberg was arrested while transporting high explosives from Odessa. Goldenberg was tossed in a cell with another, air quotes, revolutionary, who was actually a police officer. The unsuspecting Goldenberg confided in this supposed comrade details about revolutionary plot. Goldenberg was later interrogated about those exact details by an officer of the gendarmes, Dmitry Dobzhinsky, who posed also as a liberal sympathetic to the revolutionary cause. He convinced Goldenberg that Russia would only be uh, pushed towards liberal reform through revolutionary terror, and that Goldenberg had to supply the names of his comrades. Goldenberg did falsely believing uh, Dobzhinsky was actually a revolutionary. 
what I mean is Goldenberg did give up those names. And when Goldenberg realized he'd been duped twice, he hung himself with a towel in his cell. Vodka break. I got to slow down here because it's, it's actually getting to me. Mm. So I'm drinking water too. Um, the Department of State Police may have been more organized and disciplined than the third section, but they failed to protect the Tsar's life because in March 1881, Tsar Alexander II was killed by a homemade grenade or a homemade hand grenade tossed by Ignatius Grinevitsky, Grinevitsky who was part of a four-man hit squad uh, commanded by the notorious Sofia Porosky. They blew up his horse-drawn carriage, sending bits of carriage, horse, and czar into the air and onto the innocent bystanders. Fortunately for Russia, they had plenty of spare Alexes hanging around, and Tsar Alexander III ascended to the throne. Alexander III was much more of a hard-ass than his father and didn't care to continue the liberal reforms. During his reign, political terrorism was greatly reduced by his uh, government, but never uh, successfully killed uh, revolutionary fervor. Or, but they never killed revolutionary fervor. Uh, Alexander III relied on a powerful deputy named Konstantin Pobedonostev, who was Alexander III's tutor, and that of the future Tsar Nicholas II, who was essentially minister of religion. That is, uh, Konstantin Probedonostsev was minister of religion. These names. Alexander III, having seen the assassination of his Tsar daddy, was concerned for the immediate safety of little Nicholas II, as was the shared concern of high-up Russian officials. Young Nicholas II last saw his grandfather in his final form as a half-blown-to-hell corpse, which left a lasting impression on little Nicky, as the experience would do to anybody. He saw what the Russian people were capable of when they're pissed at you. Officials implemented security measures throughout the Winter Palace. They frequently tested the bells. I think that I think they mean um, the doorbells, not not church bells, in case the lines were cut by bad actors inside the palace. And even they even searched uh, under furniture for assassins. In fact, the Tsar bailed from the Winter Palace for a more remote remote home in uh, Getschina, just south of St. Petersburg. Thus far, I think Nicholas. Alexander II and III have been relatively benign compared to somebody like Ivan the Terrible, but that doesn't mean the Tsars had their hands clean by no means. I'm going to single out Alexander III here because he initiated anti-Jewish pogroms, and this seems to have been an unfortunate result of Russia's anti-government sentiment among the populace. Pogroms existed largely in Ukraine. I mentioned Alexander uh, Dreltelm, uh, former head of the third section, was at this time uh, now governor general of Kiev, or Kiev. Uh, that anti-Semitic bastard condoned the programs and permitted mobs to destroy Jewish-owned businesses and markets in a, in a three-day riot. Oh, a program, by the way, is an organized massacre of helpless people, according to Marion Webster. 
Just one point about the pronunciation of Kiev or Kiev. I, I grew up pretty fascinated by the Eastern Front in World War II and always read or heard the capital of Ukraine pronounced as Kiev, which is the Russian pronunciation. Kiev is the Ukrainian pronunciation. And in 1881, Ukraine would have been part of the Russian Empire, thus the capital would have been pronounced uh, the Russian way in 1881. So please don't think that means that I'm for this stupid war that Putin started or the slaughter of innocent people like in towns, uh, like Bucha, vodka break. I just wanted to make that very clear. So facing a revolutionary environment that likely will uh, grow out of uh, grow out of the government's control unless stopped, Alexander III takes it a different approach and unfortunately targets many um, targets and maybe intentionally different groups that appear separate from revolutionaries. So the Department of State Police, however, found um, success in old tactics carried over from the third section, namely infiltration. Remember, third section agents successfully fooled people like um, Grigory Goldenberg into spilling information. Other agents had success in posing as nihilist members. Many revolutionaries who were captured seemed to quickly turn on their comrades, but that didn't spare their lives. In one case, an assassin named Nicholas Rysakov was arrested for throwing homemade explosives, and he had very loose lips. Um, he provided the police with every detail known to him in a hope that it could that he could get some kind of deal, but they hung him anyway. Another police informant, um, Rakulov, patrolled St. Petersburg and, and outed every revolutionary he knew to detectives. These, these methods helped the Department of State Police catch up um, uh, catch up with Sofia Porovsky, the notorious leader of the People's Will and mastermind of Alexander II's assassination. She was also hanged. In May 1881, the People's Will had basically been cracked, with most of their members having escaped to countries uh, or, or to other countries or arrested. On August 14, 1881, a, a, a statue, statue, a statute, a statute was created for the uh, for the czar to declare a state of emergency. So it, it was a statute. A legislative statute was created for the czar to declare a state of emergency or an, or an exceptional emergency in any part of the empire where revolution sprouted. Uh, governor generals and the gendarmes were granted additional powers to arrest suspected revolutionaries. Public or private gatherings were forbidden, and there were uh, special decrees issued to maintain law and order. This statute uh, uh, broadened police powers, or excuse, excuse me, this statute broadening police powers was meant to be temporary, but of course it remained in place until 1917 when the statute expired because the czars expired. A quick word on these governor generals, since I didn't explain this earlier. Uh, the Russian Empire was divided into different regions or or territorial divisions, each administered by a small regional government led by a governor general. 
Also in- included in this er, in the statute was yet another reorganization and re and rebranding of the police. Special units of investi- of investigating uh, political crimes were established in St. Petersburg, Moscow, and Warsaw in Poland. These units were called protective sections or Okrania Oddelenia or the Okrana. The word Okrana seems to be a loose but commonly used term for the Russian political or secret police starting in 1881, I, I, until the end of the Tsars. But their revolutionary adversaries nicknamed them the Okrenka, which means, quote, the little security agency, according to biographer Stephen Kotkin. You're going to need some ice for that one, Okrenka. Revolutionaries be thrown shade. Okrana agents had to be experienced, uh, were often highly educated and maintained a level of professionalism way beyond that of the dim-witted third section. Their first leader was um, Nikolai uh, Ignatiev, who didn't last long and was replaced by Count Dmitry Tolstoy, not to be confused with um, one of Russia's most famous writers, Leo Tolstoy. Actually, Leo Tolstoy will make an appearance later in this episode. In addition to the Okrana, a bodyguard... um, a bodyguard unit called the Sacred Brotherhood was formed to protect Tsar Alexander III. And these guys aren't the main show, but they're worth mentioning. Um, the, the Sacred Brotherhood was formed in June 1881 before the Okrana. Uh, they were led by a council of first elders and employed ritualistic ceremonies. Hingley estimates uh, the, the, uh, the Sacred Brotherhood could have been modeled off America's Ku Klux Klan since the two groups were similar in their use of uh, political terrorism, uh, counterterrorism, deception, counterdeception. Um, they were based in, uh, or they were, yeah, they were based in an exclusive yacht club in St. Petersburg and, and employed at least 700 members, but there was, uh, they also had a volunteer guard level uh, with about 14,000 members. One interesting note, the Sacred Brotherhood entered into a secret agreement with what was left of the people's will to agree on a truce during Alexander III's coronation. Uh, but this didn't turn out to be necessary because the people's will was a hollow shell of their former selves. The Sacred Brotherhood, however, was deemed more of a menace to the Tsar than the actual revolutionaries. Uh, they and the Volunteer Guard were dissolved in May 1883. Okrana chief Dmitry Tolstoy eventually realized he didn't want to be a target for assassination, but he still wanted to stay within the police department. Tolstoy remained chief of the gendarmes, but appointed General Orzhevsky to take over Okrana responsibilities. Tolstoy was asked about um, this decision by a, uh, a colleague, and Tolstoy responded with, quote, let them shoot Orzhevsky and not me, end quote. What a savage. Uh, now, word on the street was the people's will, despite being weak, had not given up political assassination to achieve their regime change. They targeted General uh, Strelnikov, who was known to be a particularly cruel prosecutor in southern Russia. The plot was investigated by Lieutenant Colonel Grigory Sudikin, or Sudikin a, uh, a pioneer in police techniques. The Sudikin posed as a revolutionary and scholar of, color, of uh, Karl Marx, 
uh, I know that name. I've heard, I've heard of the guy um, who supported a liberal reform. The Okrana was uh, Sudikin's chance to experiment with the uh, or experiment with and perfect these infiltration techniques. Collusion with the people's will and other revolutionary groups was the cornerstone of how the Okrana dealt with these groups, as as you'll see. The people's will weren't interested in going away despite being weakened. Sudikin needed uh, help from the leading terrorists inside the PW, and he recruited Sergei uh, Gedeev, a prominent PW member uh, turned police informant. Gedeev was one of the ter- uh, was one of the terrorists who plotted who plotted to blow up Alexander II's train in Moscow. Remember, they only uh, accomplished creating an uh, inconvenient traffic jam. Degeyev benefited from the Okrana's protection and would inform Sudikin if the PW were plotting to say uh, separate Sudikin's soul from his body. If you get what I'm saying there, uh, see see the mutually beneficial relationship here. In December 1882, Degeyev was arrested for operating an illegal printing press in Odessa. Uh, maybe Odessa was a hotbed of illegal printing presses. Jeez. Gedeev wrote a letter to his uh, bestest buddy Sudikin asking him, hey man, do me a solid and bust me out of here. Sudikin traveled to Odessa uh, to free his imprisoned soulmate. Both men planned to launch terror attacks against government officials, including Dmitry Tolstoy. But even Sudikin had a target on his head. Uh, how weird is it, uh, or how weird is that since uh, he's helping the revolutionaries? This was a seriously turbulent time and uh, a turbulent time to be an officer in Russia. A lot of double agents and a lot of backstabbing. Um, Sudikin went on to resign his position from the police, but was, but was recalled by Alexander III as Minister of the Interior uh, to fight against a wave of revolutionary terrorism that Sudikin, ironically, helped provoke. That's how you do job security, right? Uh, make money creating a problem and then get hired somewhere to fix the problem and make money. Meanwhile, Degeyev traveled to Geneva to meet a revolutionary terrorist abroad named uh, uh, Leo uh, Tikomirov. Leo Tikomirov. Degeyev was starting to get suspicious about Sudikin. Um, honestly, how, how could he not? Sudikin sounds pretty sketchy. He was definitely some kind of double agent. It turned out that some of the printing press ink in the, ink in the people's, or let me start over. It turned out that some of the printing press ink that the people's will used to print their illegal paper was supplied by Sudikin, as in bought and paid for using Okrana resources. Seems like a no-no. Uh, but hold on. The Okrana was using uh, deception tactics to lure the people's will into a false sense of security. The Okrana didn't just supply ink. They also supplied false documents, as in fake material, for the people's will presses to write about. Even crazier is the people's will had been more or less completely hijacked by the Okrana. A little police terrorist collab there. Degeyev got smart to what was going on and exploited Sudikin's trust in him by luring the minister to an empty apartment in St. Petersburg. Degeyev shot Sudikin 
um, but left the job of actually killing him to a couple of comrades who beat Sudikin to death with blunt force objects. Sudikin or not, Russia still had a terrorist problem. One of those terrorists was Alexander Ulyanov. Um, you history buffs will probably recognize the name Ulyanov. Alexander Ulyanov was a graduate student who hated the Tsar so much that he took part in a plot to kill Alexander III. Their plan was to assassinate him on March 1st, 1887, on, a, uh, on the sixth anniversary, or on the six-year anniversary of Alexander II's assassination. The Okrana intercepted a letter detailing the plot. They, f they found and arrested the letter's author uh, while he was uh, skulking around Nevsky Prospect in St. Petersburg with a bomb. He said, it's not for me, or it's not mine. It's a friend. The Okrana arrested several other conspirators who confessed that Alexander Ulyanov was their main ideologist um, and helped construct some of the bombs. The revolutionaries were making their explosives more deadly by adding strychnine pellets so that upon detonation, the explosion would send poison shrapnel everywhere. Also, the bombs were disguised inside innocuous objects, such as books. The failed attempt against the Tsar saw them all hanged, including Alexander Ulyanov, which, oops, the government shot themselves in the foot because Alexander Ulyanov was the, bro the older brother of Vladimir Ulyanov, a.k.a. Vladimir Lenin, who vowed to avenge his brother's death. Another less well-known uh, individual named Sophia Ginsberg joined a terrorist group in Switzerland and then traveled to Russia using a false passport with the uh, with intent to kill the czar. Not sure if the pretense for her arrest, or I'm not sure of the pretense for her arrest, but the Okrana caught up to her and found a manifesto advocating for the czar's murder. In 1890, Ginsburg was sentenced to uh, 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 penal servitude <clears throat> for, for life, uh, like the other revolutionary friend, uh, Leo Mursky. Again, uh, I take this to mean prison... Uh, or life in prison, probably in Siberia, and it's not penile servitude. Now, some countries in Western Europe harbored revolutionaries who escaped Russia, including Lenin. Um, nations like England and France didn't outlaw gatherings to discuss radical ideas, and so the environment was right for such activity. On a side note, Sometimes I think about um, what if right now an anti-Putin group is meeting in, say, Paris or Vienna, and that group has at least one very power-hungry individual who, if in Russia's driver's seat, was actually worse than Putin and therefore more dangerous to the West. I don't know. Maybe. There's a lot of power-hungry bastards out there. There are a lot of power-hungry bastards everywhere. So because many revolutionaries fled to Western Europe, the, the Russian government wanted to spy on their expats abroad. Remember, this wasn't new uh, for them since the third section had already done such operations. It appeared to be the police department's foreign agency, not the Okrana, who spied on revolutionaries outside Russia. Plainclothes agents um, tailed suspects, bribed, and employed detective tactics to hunt down revolutionaries. Some agents were citizens of that country, and others were Russian citizens. Uh, for internal operations inside Russia, 
infiltration and deception were the tactics of choice, as we have been talking about. Uh, many agents were turned away from their revolutionary groups uh, into uh, government agents, either through bribes, dissolution with their comrades, or blackmail. You know, threats to their life, lives of loved ones, possible imprisonment, or exile. I'll touch on some of these foreign operations outside Russia. Peter Rashkovsky was a brilliant Russian agent who ended up running the foreign agency. On his watch, the People's Will uh, printing presses were destroyed in Geneva. Another incident caused Swiss authorities to expel Russian citizens for suspected terrorist activity. See, what happened was there was, or, or there were these uh, two fools in Zurich who were experimenting with explosives in a uh, revolutionary dynamite lab when one of their bombs went kaboom by accident. Um, one of those idiots lost both of his feet. He was carried off to a hospital where he confessed to Swiss authorities what they were doing, and he died uh, not that long after. When other revolutionaries caught word the Swiss were deporting people back to Russia, many of them fled to Paris, which actually played it into a trap set by Peter Rushkovsky, since Paris was like his domain unbeknownst to the fleeing revolutionaries. Uh, a quick side note, I, I know a guy who, uh, and I'm keeping the, I'm going to keep the details out because this is admittedly sketchy. Uh, but back in the seventies, his country was fraught with revolutionary fervor at the time. And he toyed around with homemade explosives. He, he told me that um, he and a friend were trying to put together a, a bomb. And he didn't specify what it was for, of course. Um, all he said was they, were ju they just wanted to see if they could get it to work. Uh, unfortunately, the bomb detonated while they were still working on it. My very loose acquaintance lost a finger, but his friend was killed. So please do not ever do such a stupid thing, please. So Rashkovsky had infiltrated one of the uh, immigre circles in Paris using the fake name um, Landizen, pretending to be a, a violent extremist. Using agent provocateur tactics, Rashkovsky slash Landizen convinced uh, his group to, pr to prepare for assassinating the Tsar. He fronted the cash for the operation, which he said was inherited from a rich uncle. Yeah, if your uncle's name is Theo Krana, the group set up a bomb factory in... Uh, uh, the group set up a bomb factory in Rashkovsky both helped produce bombs as his alias uh, Landizen, while also keeping the Minister of the Interior in Russia informed of their operations. French police, of course, raided the bomb-making operation and arrested the conspirators, but but weird, Lansden slash Raskovsky was not there. How convenient. Raskovsky had already traveled to Belgium, having duped the revolutionaries. That bastard actually went on to live quite comfortably in a nice villa with, a, with great food and social connections in, in French society. He also persuaded French journalists to become sympathetic to the Russian government's counter-revolutionary cause. I see this as an effort to try and manipulate Western media to... Russia's cause uh, to some degree. Rashkovsky was the was a was a master manipulator and, and very powerful. But 
the end came at least job-wise when he voiced his concern to the czar himself about employing a French hypnotist named, uh, uh, or a French hypnotist and con man named Felipe um, for spiritual guidance. Uh, I'm not making this up. It's, it kind of reminds me of Rasputin. Uh, for this transgression, Raskovsky was eventually dismissed from the police in 1902. On November 1st, 1894, Alexander III died of nephritis, or kidney inflammation for you non-medical folk, and Nicholas II took the throne of the vast Russian Empire. However, there had been a famine from 1891 through 1892. And, impressive, uh, and impressively, the, the Russian people, that, that is, the, the private citizens, as well as volunteer organizations, did more to provide famine relief than the actual government itself. The government's absence at the famine at the famine party was further evidence that the government, um, and now Nicholas 2.0, were about as useful as a coffee mug made of ice. Nicholas II was like the, the Windows Vista of czars. Not that great. Nicholas II had an, an impressive beard, but no amount of facial hair was going to increase his enthusiasm for being czar or make him any better at his job. Now, now to be fair, his father had not properly prepared him to take the throne. Um, and Nicholas himself seemed ambivalent or even indifferent about uh, becoming czar. His rule started with scandal when in 1896, during a celebration of Moscow to Nicholas's czardom, a mass stampede of, 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 uh, of a human herd trampled 1,200 people into dead pancakes. The stampede occurred because a limited supply of free food and beer were offered to starving peasants. A tragedy such as this would normally, normally um, implore a ruling head of state, president, or what have you, to mourn the victims. Uh, not Nicholas. He was like, hmm, pretend to be sad about gross peasant people or party with my wife and the French ambassador at a super duper fun time booze fueled ball decisions. Nicholas chose the latter seeing as, uh, seeing as attending a party in his mind was relatively minor compared to the government's inaction in a famine. So partying shouldn't destroy the state, right? Well, he wasn't wrong, but it didn't help the growing revolutionary sentiment. Remember, the stampede occurred in Moscow, so when Nicholas II eventually visited Moscow, there were inevitably assassination plots, one of which was schemed by a gentleman named Ivan Rasputin. No, no relation to the Rasputin. Ivan and his band of thugs wanted to uh, blow up Nicholas, carrying on the tradition of turning czars into charred projectiles. And actually, they weren't thugs. Uh, many of the conspirators this time were, again, well, this time and again are the same thing, but uh, many of the conspirators were students. They experimented with bomb making with the help of an anarchist group in Germany, but the plot was foiled and, and the men were arrested. Now, as promised, an appearance by Leo, uh, Leo Tolstoy. Tolstoy was probably Russia's best-known living author in the late 1800s. He advocated for nonviolence and even wrote to Alexander III requesting uh, his uh, czar daddy's assassins be pardoned. Alexander III did not pardon them, but uh, he seemed to have a soft spot for Tolstoy since he ordered the author not be put under police surveillance. Dang it, poor Okrana had to find something else to do. 
Uh, Tolstoy maintained police immunity under Nicholas II too, despite Tolstoy's writings on radical topics that were that were anathema to the government. But the the government naturally couldn't keep their dirty mitts off censoring Tolstoy's work. Tolstoy was um, Tolstoy was just smarter and had his controversial writings printed by a Russian independent media outlet based outside of Russia and distributed by, uh, or, and the publications were distributed by revolutionaries. Honestly, those folks were probably Okrana agents. Vodka break. Nicholas II only occasionally had Tolstoy surveyed, but never arrested. Another familiar name appears on our radar here, and we already talked about him. Actually, we talked about uh, we talked more about his brother. That person is, of course, Vladimir Lenin. Lenin became a cop magnet in 1893 when he joined a Marxist group that distributed propaganda to factory workers. Despite the Okrana knowing Lenin was a bad revolutionary egg, he was permitted to travel outside of Russia in 1895. And the authorities most likely knew full well what Lenin was up to. Lenin then snuck back into Russia with a bunch of uh, what the government deemed as no-no naughty books. And I'm not talking about Lenin's Playboy collection. I'm talking about his revolutionary literature. Lenin was not, uh, Lenin was not only well-read, but he also authored his own works, such as The Workers' Cause, published in 1895, The Development of Capitalism in Russia in 1899, both of which were considered subversive. The latter he wrote while in a comfortable exile in Siberia. It was more of a vacation, really. If I, if I didn't say it already, uh, well, here it is. Exile in Siberia during the Tsarist times overall was kind of uh, on a gradient. At least that's how I think of it. So people could be in prison or doing hard labor in a mine or expanding the Trans-Siberian Railway. Uh, exile was not necessarily or not nearly the icy death sentence that it was made to be under Lenin or even more so under Stalin. Of course, Lenin read the works of big granddaddy communist Karl Marx, since Das Kapital uh, had a Russian translation available in 1872. The communists were not yet on Nicholas's naughty list since one, they didn't employ terror tactics or carry out assassinations of government officials at least not yet, and two, the more dangerous revolutionary movements were fractured and fighting amongst themselves, so the communists managed to float under the radar. I'll leave the communists alone for now, but don't worry, they're going to come back uh, again, again, and again. So the end of the 19th century in Russia, in the Russian Empire was a bit dicey, to say the least, but here comes the year 1900, and you know what they say, new century knew you. Yeah, boy, Russia, time to change. Let's go into the 20th century with hope and a positive attitude, striving for a better future, a future that's more rosy, more prosperous, and full of life and joy than years past. And uh, oh, uh, oh dear. The early 1900s saw an escalation in the fracturing of revolutionary groups and further uh, and, and, and a further embrace of violence. And look, here come the Marxists. These guys crave the limelight, don't they? Or more like crave the red light. One of the first Marxist groups that popped that popped up in 
or that popped up was the Russian uh, Social Democratic Labor Party, of which Lenin affiliated, and is the ancestor of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. The second group was the Socialist Revolutionary Party, created in 1902, and was more or less uh, scrounged together uh, with what with what was left of the people's will. Each each party was clandestine in nature, but maintained some legal activity in the empire. One key difference between uh, these two groups was the use of violence for political gain. The social revolutionaries were cool with it, but you may be surprised to find that Lenin's social democrats were not. Another key difference was their view of the Russian peasant. Social democrats focused their their efforts on the urban factory worker, while the social revolutionaries smelled ripe revolutionary fruit among the rural population. But both were left-wing in political leaning. The Okrana was wholly aware of both groups' methods and aims. But the 1905 revolution lit a fire under their ass. A short short sidestep here on the 1905 revolution. Basically, the revolution was the culmination of factory workers demanding better working conditions, peasants demanding land, educated Russians demanding reform, and dwindling support for for a war Russia was engaged in against Japan, of which Russia would unexpectedly lose. Losing a war further eroded the people's confidence in Tsar Nicholas. Nicholas was like a kid with his fingers in his ears, you know, shaking his head going, no, 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 I'm not listening. Go to your safe place, Nikki. The spark that put people over the edge was Bloody Sunday, when a a peaceful protest was was violently put down by the government and set a course for a two-year period of unrest, but uh, not regime change. More on Bloody Sunday later on. Uh, Vodka break. Okay, that was the last of that glass. So I'm going to pour some more because I'm not quite done with this yet. Okay, I don't know if I'm going to drink all that. I probably will. Inside the government, things were being shaken up. The Ministry of the Interior went through six different chiefs in a five-year period. Let's remind ourselves here that the, the Minister of the Interior is the Supreme Law Enforcement Officer, the top cop. The most formidable fuzz. Uh-oh, it's the head popo. Three of six of those chiefs would end up being assassinated. And there was an, uh, an innovative chief of the Okrana, Sergei Zubatov. As a student, Zubatov was actually a revolutionary, which apparently was not an uncommon path for a secret police agent. Upon becoming chief, he instituted modern uh, policing techniques for the uh, modern policing techniques for the time, uh, such as fingerprinting, photography, improved detective techniques, and a general improvement of police professionalism. Zubatov also concentrated on developing uh, provocation techniques. He would say, quote, we will provoke you into acts of terror and then crush you, end quote. Provocation wasn't new to either the third section or the Okrana, but Zubatov's main uh, contribution was false organizations, specifically trade unions that were actually controlled by the Okhrana. Russia's economic expansion in the 1890s spurred industrialization in urban areas. With industrialization came appalling working conditions. Factory workers had been demanding better working conditions from the government for a while. But the government, 
and just left them on red. With workers' demands consistently not being met, they started staging strikes. Uh, strikes combined with Russia's red-hot revolutionary environment and thirst for regime change, the Okhrana figured it was only a matter of time before factory workers drifted towards extremism. Zubatov figured worker strikes probably had more to do with material well-being than regime change, so he grabbed his pom-poms and cheered on the factory workers in their cause. However, quietly, the Okhrana set up the Moscow uh, Mechanical Productions Workers Mutual Aid Society, an Okhrana-controlled trade union. So what Zubatov is doing here is providing a moderate nonviolent organization as an option for factory workers to voice their demands for better conditions. This kept workers from joining more violent groups, uh, killing government officials and enabling the Okhrana to keep an eye on revolutionary sentiment among this particular demographic. When I read this, I had to wonder, in the United States around the same time period, in the early 1900s, industrialists and the U.S. government were pretty concerned about unionization and the industrial workforce, and they went to great lengths to prevent the establishment of labor unions. If you've ever read uh, Upton Sinclair's The Jungle, it's a great book, um, you know what I'm talking about. Legitimately terrible and horrific uh, working conditions driving workers to demand better pay, more power, and um, greater representation through trade unions. I can't help but wonder if the U.S. government either knew about um, Okrana organizations or, um, well, I mean, they must have. And and the government um, could have colluded with American industrialists to squash unions because it either assumed or in, or indeed knew that the Okrana was working on U.S. soil. This is just me speculating, nothing I can back up with evidence, but, uh, but maybe, maybe this happened. I don't know. Anyway, back to Moscow. Around 50,000 workers joined the Okrana-controlled union in a uh, procession led by Moscow's Governor General Dmitry Trepov, son of Fyodor Trepov, uh, mentioned earlier. And now they marched around Alexander II's uh, monument at the Kremlin on the anniversary of the serfs' emancipation. I see this pre procession as the Okhrana dumping, or duping, <laughs> dumping, duping these poor factory workers into doing something purely symbolic, while the Okhrana, of course, has no intention of implementing the, or, or of employing the government, imploring the government to improve working conditions. It's like, look Look how much we agree with liberalizing Russia. Yay. Wink emoji. I'm not sure if the workers knew their union was a secret police organization or not, but I'm guessing not. Uh, so the Okrana felt as if they had the industrial workforce on a short leash. But with students, it was a totally different story. A protest of students from St. Petersburg University was violently stamped out, and uh, quite literally because mounted policemen on horseback charged at, uh, charged at and, and slashed uh, students with whips. In return, students staged a nationwide university strike. The authorities responded with an automatic military draft for students caught protesting. In retaliation, an ex-student named uh, Karpovich shot and killed the education minister. 
let's see, Bogolipov. In April 1902, the first of the six interior ministers was knocked off by another student assassin. Uh, man, what do they teach at these Russian schools, huh? The assassin, uh, Stepan uh, Balmashov, disguised himself as an assistant and requested an audience with then interior minister um, Sipyagin. Balmashov apparently approached Sipyagin and handed him a, quote, sentence of execution before pulling out a gun and unaliving Sipyagin. Uh, I see it's going down like this. Balmashov's like, good sir, good sir, I have a notice for you, please. He, ha- he runs up to Sipyagin, hands him the letter, and he, and he grabs it from him. He goes, give me that. He, uh, he opens it, looks at it all confused, and reads it out loud. Say hello to my little friend. <laughs> the next clay pigeon of a minister to take Sipyagin's place was Vyacheslav von Pleve, who tended to lump both uh, moderate and extremist groups into one big terror soup. To Pleve, they were all the same, and he fought both with equal prejudice. I made the distinction between Lenin's Social Democrats and the Socialist Revolutionary Party. It turned out Balmashov was part of a group underneath the Socialist Revolutionaries called the Fighting Organization, founded and led by Grigory Gershuni, uh, which was regarded as an especially dangerous organization. Despite the Okrana's apparent failure of uh, preventing the education minister's um, educated mind getting blown, or rather getting blown out of his skull, Okrana chief Zubatov was at the height of his power, the height of his game. He expanded the Okrana's use of false organizations into southern Russia to help Jewish workers gain equal rights in a time in Russia when that was not exactly on the Tsar's to-do list. Workers injured in factories sometimes could not receive compensation until the Okrana intervened. Okay, so it seems like there's actually some positive stuff happening here, but there's still a secret police agency, so don't get too excited. Vodka break. Mm. You guys got to try this. Um, got to try this bottle next time you buy some vodka. Usually vodka for me, I think, bites. Well, this is actually pretty so- uh, smooth. I might have said that already. Uh, these false police unions were, however, Zubatov's undoing when a police-provoked uh, workers' movement got out of hand and, work- and workers' strikes spread across southern Russia. And non-Okrana police had to intervene. For this oopsie-doopsie, Zubatov was discredited, removed from his position, and placed under police supervision. Zubatov lived until 1917 when he popped off this planet voluntarily upon hearing Tsar Nicholas II abdicated the throne. He probably knew the next government, likely a revolutionary government, would have him arrested, tortured, sent to Siberia, tortured some more, and eventually killed. Now let's talk about some of the more colorful characters that either for sure were or maybe were Okrana agents. First up to bat is Yevno Azev. Born in 1869, Azov grew up in an impoverished Jewish household. He entered secret uh, police work as a spy. 
1892, he put himself through school in Germany and studied electrical engineering, paid for by the police. Since he was also reporting on fellow students who could, uh, or he, who who he could out as suspected revolutionaries. Now that's what I call work study. Azef was called to Moscow in 1899 and and placed among the ranks of the police provocateurs by Zubatov himself. Azef then joined the Moscow detachment of the socialist revolutionaries. He persuaded these new buddies of his that he should move their illegal printing press from Finland to Siberia. But he carefully plotted for the machine and some members of the party to be seized and route while uh, ensuring he was not implicated by his pals as an Okrana agent. As of also helped found the fighting organization with their leader, Grigory Gershuni. Before his arrest and as of subsequent assumption as leader, Azef was successful at being both a cop and a pretend revolutionary. He rose so high that the Okrana, uh, or he rose, excuse me, he rose so high in the Okrana, he received frequent and generous increases in pay from 50 to 500 rubles a month, which now you're probably thinking, big deal. But this is 1902 rubles, and unfortunately, I couldn't convert this to USD because the legit exchange rate sources only have ruble uh, to USD data going back to the 1990s. Um, and 50 to 100 or 50 to 500 rubles in USD today would be negligible in light of not so special Putin's special war operation. 500 rubles today gets you like six bucks. Anyway, what's important is Azif enjoyed unprecedented compensation for his work, which on top of his pay, Included bonuses and uh, exorbitant ex- expenses on the Okrana's dime. Looking at pictures of this guy, he looks like a mob boss or, or maybe like a Russian Al Capone. I, I would not want to uh, be on this dude's bad side. I'll, t- I'll tell you that right now. The money Azif was making, um, in his mind, justified political terror. Now, this is speculation on my part, but I could see him rile up the fighting organization, then using the uh, Okrana resources to thwart a revolutionary plot. Then be like, oh, wow, look how awesome I am at my job. Money, please. These schemes are honestly not far off from what the Okrana agents were actually doing, as we will find out. As if provoked his way into earning those fat stacks of cold, hard cash. He enjoyed money. Uh, probably enjoyed money a bit too much, to be honest, as I've spent nights at the most expensive brothel in Moscow, which, okay, no judgment. You do you, as if. Each to their own. Whatever floats your boat. Uh, but he chased cash in manipulative ways. In addition to income from the Okrana, Azef collected donations from wealthy elites and staged armed robberies in order to line the, the, the coffers of the socialist revolutionaries uh, or their treasury which he treated like an expense account. So he had two sources of personal revenue here. Azef was a master at being two-faced. He fed the Okrana just enough to keep them happy, but not enough to slaughter the cash cow that was the Socialist Revolutionary Party. 
the party eventually got smart to what Azef's, uh, to Azef's uh, tomfoolery, yet he remained a revered figure among his, his comrades. Azef would be great at having two families, each kept secret from, from the other because that's basically what he did. Again, things get super blurred here between the Okrana and the revolutionaries. The fighting organization wanted to assassinate Interior Minister Vyacheslav von Pleve, who was essentially Azov's boss. But there was fracturing, again, among the fighting organization in a, in a uh, party branch based in southern Russia. Azov's branch and another branch led by Sofia uh, Klichogu, or Klichoglu, uh, com- competed to kill Pleve. Sophia, however, made the mistake of pissing off this mad Russian mafia boss by trying to bypass him and assassinating Pleve. Azov outed her to the Okrana, and she was arrested, conveniently clearing the way for Azov's competition. How fun. An assassin named Igor Zazanov um, acted on Azov's orders. Uh, so he threw a bomb at Pleve's carriage, which, rent, which went straight through one of the windows and delivered Pleve to the Almighty, much like a new Ikea set, in pieces. Great, I'm late for my meeting with the Tsar. If it wasn't for the spider I found in the shower, my kids hiding my shoes, and my wife burning the borscht, I would have been there by now. Nothing could make this day any worse. Oh, what in the fuck? They really have to stop with these horse-drawn carriages and invest in some armored cars. Azov had a lot of contempt for Pleve since he was greatly responsible for a, a particularly nasty anti-Jewish program. Azov, being Jewish, was like, oh, hell no. Honestly, the Okrana had complicated relations with um, Jewish Russians. So just another quick word on these programs. Um Pogrom more or less is a riot, which I think I've said twice now. Uh, it's not a type of settlement or camp like the, like the Nazis would have. But um, anti-Jewish pogroms continued under Tsar Nicholas II. Um, so if you've seen the musical Fiddler on the Roof, which if you haven't, I, uh, you should go watch it. It's fantastic. Uh, Fiddler is supposed to take place during this time in the uh, southern Russian Empire. Sadly, anti-Semitism was rife in the Russian Empire. The government found them to be a convenient scapegoat to divert blame from Nicholas II's own incompetence. Pogroms were encouraged by the Okrana and other police. It is rumored to this day that the book, The Protocols of the Elders of Zion, a piece of basically hate literature, which documents a supposed plan for Jewish world domination, was authored by the Okrana's foreign agency chief, Peter Rajkovsky. But this is not confirmed. So technically, the real author is unknown. Who or whatever wrote it, this book has contributed to the pestilence of anti-Semitism around the world, including in the United States. Another suspected Okrana agent was Joseph Jugashvili, better known as Joseph Stalin. According to Stalin biographer Stephen Kotkin, 
Stalin was plagued with accusations of being an Okrana agent, but it was never proved. According to a different source, there was a letter supposedly written by a high-ranking Okrana officer stating that Joseph Stalin infiltrated Lenin's Social Democratic Labor Party, but that when he was elected to the Bolshevik Central Committee, he cut ties with the, the secret police. But let's examine what motive Stalin would have had to join the Okrana. Stalin, the ever-shrewd tactician, was certainly ambitious and probably more concerned with obtaining power and self-preservation. We've seen many examples in this episode of the Okrana helping their agents get into positions of power both within the police and in revolutionary movements. Men like Azef were promoted and rewarded handsomely for their work. It would be absurd to think that Stalin remained completely out of the service of the Okrana. It would be ideal and rather convenient for Stalin to utilize the Okrana's skill to ascend uh, or in utilize the Okrana's skill in ascending their uh, their agents to prominent positions while denouncing competitors and having them sent to Siberia. Some degree of Okrana uh, collusion would have been unavoidable for a young, ambitious revolutionary such as Stalin. So this motive to join is there, and it makes sense, I think. And when you get into the kind of the weeds of this and the logistics of Stalin's conduct across the Russian Empire, it's really hard of not... Um, not to have one of your eyebrows float to the stratosphere. In his many revolutionary endeavors, Stalin merely passed untouched at many police checkpoints, at, uh, at points when he was supposedly a wanted man. His uh, prison sentences and exile to Siberia were relatively mild compared to the frozen agony of, of, of others doing hard labor. And Stalin managed to evade Okrana custody at will. Whatever the, the stories, no evidence has ever been uncovered confirming Stalin was an Okrana agent. The reasons for this could be that Stalin was never an Okrana agent, you know, just to state the obvious first. Next, Stalin himself did his best to erase, all, to erase any semblance of his past. Hingley points to a biographer who noted that people who knew Stalin more intimately in his early life were executed after being made to write and sign denunciations that anything they thought they knew about the man were untrue. And to further muddy the waters, Stalin's government, successive Soviet governments, and the government of the Russian Federation have rewritten narratives about Stalin to carefully shape his place in history. If there was evidence Stalin was an Okrana agent, those documents have probably been long destroyed. The people who destroyed those documents shot. The crematorium where the documents and the bodies were destroyed dismantled. All of it, wrapped in layers upon layers of story, hearsay, and misdirection. Whatever the truth, Hingley points out that, quote, 
for the Okrana and Stalin not to have made use of each other's services would have been a much out of character for the organization as for the man. Let's talk about another Okrana agent, uh, Father George Gapon. Father Gapon was a Russian Orthodox priest who set up his own Okrana-backed workers' union called the Assembly of Russian Workers' Men in St. Petersburg. On January 9th, 1905, Father Gapon led a crowd of tens of thousands of workers on march through St. Petersburg. This This particular January 9th was a Sunday and would become Bloody Sunday, the spark that led to the 1905 revolution. Gapon and the crowd converged on the Winter Palace where um, Gapon wanted to personally hand Tsar Nicholas II a petition to improve working conditions. I'm still unsure if this whole thing is a giant Okrana staged ploy, but but anyway, uh, Gapon had the petition in his hand, but old Tricky Nicky left the Winter Palace the day before, and but left plenty of troops behind to protect the palace, having been ordered to stop the march by uh, by uh, force of arms if necessary. Unfortunately, the situation boiled over into a massacre. The Tsar's troops opened fire on a peaceful demonstration led by a priest, albeit a secret police agent. It's estimated at least a thousand were killed and many times that wounded. And some of the victims included police officers just doing crowd control. Gapon escaped because the socialist revolutionaries sent a small protection unit to guard Gapon. Uh, when the troops uh, started shooting, they threw Gapon to the ground and then helped him escape. They continued helping Gapon av- avoid authorities by cutting his beard and disguising him in, uh, disguising him as a regular dude instead of a priest. He escaped abroad and did very priestly things, like gambling, having love affairs, and taking pride in being a revolutionary leader and writing memoirs. That last thing is uh, is fine. Nothing sinful about writing memoirs, but... Uh, I don't know. I'm not an Orthodox priest. This whole um, seemingly symbolic relationship between the Okrana and the revolutionaries is so fascinating and astonishing to me. With some of these incidents, it seems like the Okrana was almost working against the Tsar. Father Gapan eventually did return to Russia and was murdered by one of the guys who protected him during the Bloody Sunday Massacre because they found out Gapon was a Okrana agent. Quick vodka break. Let's check up on the open season of interior ministers. The next McMinister who took over from Pleve, and uh, may he rest in pieces, was, um, oh boy, Sivya Toplik Mirsky. Uh, so I'm just going to say S. Mirsky because... Even though I wrote out how to say the first part of his last name, we're going to be here forever if I have to repeat this. Um, so S. Uh, S. Mursky took over after Plea, but he resigned after the events of Bloody Sunday. Okay, thank God I don't have to say his name that much. Um, Alexander uh, Buligan then took uh, the interior minister position after M or S Mursky. The Okrana leadership got a facelift too after Zubatov was ousted for letting one of his Okrana backed unions get a little too rowdy. The job then fell to Lieutenant General Alexander Gerasimov. 
uh, not the same Alexander Gerasimov as the Soviet painter. I checked. That, that would be quite the career change. And speaking of change, the 1905 revolution changed the Tsar's approach to government, albeit uh, likely reluctantly. In a speech delivered in October 1905, Nicholas II casually renounced his belief in autocracy and announced the formation of a sort of uh, Russian parliament, the, the state Duma, with uh, representatives that would be elected by the population at large. The state Duma would have limited authority, but, um, but it was a start. It's something. Another major development that, that same month was the formation of the St. Petersburg Soviet under the leadership of Leon Trotsky. The Soviets seemed to present themselves as an, as an alternative government um, and even raised their own police force that quarreled with the current police force. On one occasion, two members of the St. Saint Petersburg Soviet visited the Okrana office and tricked an assistant into letting them have a look-see around the place. These two Soviets probably broke into Grasimov's office and went through the papers on his desk. Two things were clear. Gerasimov should have had those papers password protected. And two, the Okrana felt as if they were losing control. Well, that's because they were. Uh, some agents went on strike. Others feared for their physical safety, their lives, their jobs. Uh, you know, the, the creation of the state Duma and um, this new form of government threatened the Okrana's authority and very existence. And again, it kind of seems like the Okrana themselves helped heat up revolution or uh, yeah helped heat up revolution fever by collaborating well with the revolutionaries other cracks in the okrana's uh, professional competency started to show once um, a pretend revolutionary actually an okrana agent made reports out loud in the open for everyone to hear clearly risking their real identity Gerasimov did did what he could to to perfect the tactics developed by Zubatov, such as espionage. Facing new threats, Gerasimov maintained about 150 spies inside opposing groups and parties. The Okrana kept spies in the socialist revolutionaries, uh, both the Bolsheviks and the Mensheviks, and uh, um, anarchist groups as well. In 1906, there was yet another breakaway group uh, fractured from the social, socialist revolutionaries who called themselves the Maximalists, who seemed to get aroused by terrorism. They really liked terrorism. They, they just wanted to kill officials without advanced preparation or planning. They just wanted to cause chaos. In August 1906, the Maximalists blew up the home of the last of our six McMinisters of the interior, Piotr Stolypin. Stolypin wasn't home and thus was unharmed in, the, in that attack, and he remained unharmed for several other assassination attempts where the assassins used uh, homemade DIY explosives. As you can see, the government was still struggling to contain revolutionary violence, and frankly, they were getting sick of it. The imperial judicial system began to employ executions on a scale not yet seen employed by the czarist secret police. And political offenders were tried in military courts, which had not been done to civilian uh, political prisoners since 1878. For example, a field court martial 
operated for about a year from 1906 to, to uh, 1907 and probably handed down over 1,000 execution sentences, um, oftentimes condemning somebody to death within 24 hours. And those condemned were then shot or hanged. The field courts marshal were located all over the empire, the bloodiest being in Warsaw, Poland, and Riga, Latvia, with 59 and 57 executions, respectively, according to records. Those who were condemned to death in St. Petersburg were shipped down the Neva River to Kronstadt Island at the, at the head of the Gulf of Finland. On Kronstadt, the condemned were hanged on mobile gallows. There were other facilities built specifically for firing squads as well. Between 1907 and 1909, the military district courts had, had a, approximately 5,000 people executed and tens of thousands condemned to imprisonment and exile in Siberia. This was the closest to a reign of terror the Tsar achieved during his rule. The government even had, uh, had uh, Cossack riot squadrons violently enforcing the law on behalf of the Tsar. And they were often compared, um, specifically the Cossacks were compared to Ivan the Terrible's horse riding, terror wielding, Oprichniki. Tsar Alexander II, the, Tsar Alexander II was, uh, was no Stalin. Uh, for one, Nicholas's body count clocks in somewhere in the thousands, whereas Stalin's is measured in millions dead. Furthermore, uh, the Tsarist the government and the Okhrana were only reacting to revolutionary attacks. So despite the Okhrana's incompetence and cruelty, they were not an offensive force. That model will, would change with uh, future secret police forces, forces in Russia. They probably should have been more proactive, but given just the level of anger and revolutionary pressure, if you will, maybe it wouldn't have made any difference. Vodka break. Let's talk about how this czarist ship went down and took the Okrana with it. In my opinion, the Okrana for sure contributed to taking the whole czarist government down, uh, but they, they did it in increments by assisting in revolutionary aims. The Okrana walked a fine line by both fanning the flames of revolution and, and um, preserving the government, two objectives that have a glaring conflict of interest. The Okrana was good at infiltrating these groups, but the revolutionaries were getting good at picking out undercover cops. For example, um, uh, Vladimir Burtsev was somebody who specialized in plucking Okrana agents from their midst. Burtsev outed the dreaded Azov, forcing Azov to escape abroad using false papers provided by the Okrana. Uh, as if uh, gained some notoriety abroad, dabbled in trading stocks, and, and actually opened a corset shop in Berlin, of all things. He, uh, he really looks more like, a, like an arms dealer than a, than a corset connoisseur. Um, Azif was arrested by the Germans and died not long after his release from prison in 1918. Political assassinations decreased after Azif was ousted, but the but the government's ministers were not safe. In 1911, um, Interior Minister Peter Stolopin was um, attending a gala at the Kiev or Kiev Opera House. He was with Tsar Nicholas and his family in the emperor's private suite. Um, Dmitry Bogrov, a young Okrana agent, approached Stolopin, pulled out a gun, and fired two shots at him, killing Stolopin. 
the motive for Bogrov's killing of Stolypin has never really been clarified. Um, Bogrov was Jewish and possibly killed Stolypin for the anti-Jewish pogroms. Bogrov was also a master at the double role of Okrana agent and revolutionary, just like Azif. I'll address why there was so much friendly fire going on here soon. Stolopin certainly fostered a, a police apparatus that ultimately killed him. Uh, just like, you know, uh, just like the other dead um, former ministers. <laughs> the irony. Predictably, the Okrana cozied up to the Bolsheviks. Why? The Bolsheviks were a relatively benign bunch of chaps compared to to the more violent revolutionary movements out there. The Okrana figured, hey, um, the more we help the Bolsheviks, the less ground the non-Bolsheviks uh, gain. This can't fail. The Okrana didn't view the Bolsheviks as a serious competitor to forcefully taking power from the Tsar. And their wacky leader, Lenin, seemed, to, uh, seemed too eccentric to resonate with the common Russian. In fact, the Okrana saw Lenin as weakening the revolutionary movement because, and you might want to sit down for this, Lenin was kind of an arrogant asshole. Lenin refused to work with the other revolutionary groups uh, uh, to, to crush their common enemy. He preferred to build a Bolshevik coalition, uh, loyal only to himself. The Okrana were able to keep an eye on Comrade Lenin using their spy, uh, Roman Malinovsky, whose skill may have surpassed Azif. Malinovsky was a criminal turned cop uh, uh, for the Okrana. As an undercover agent, he became uh, secretary of a trade union in St. Petersburg. He presented himself as a social democrat and schmoozed Lenin's Bolsheviks and their key rival, the Mensheviks. Uh, Bolshevik, by the way, means majority because Lenin's party won the majority vote on key issues during the Second Congress. Um, conversely, the Mensheviks were the minority vote. Um, both parties called for the abdication of the Tsar, but believed in different means to accomplish that goal. Uh, so Melanovsky got a buddy-buddy with both parties and passed information about uh, both of them to the Okrana. Then he ran for the Fourth State Duma on the side of, uh, of the Bolsheviks with Okrana financing. The Okrana even uh, scrubbed his personal record clean of any uh, criminal record or criminal activity. Malinovsky became a uh, social democrat deputy in the Duma and secured a leadership position in the Bolshevik party. Malinovsky was a kick-ass speaker and once addressed the Duma declaring a joint venture of the Social Democrats, the Bolsheviks, and the Mensheviks, which only increased the raw blood-dripping beef between these two parties. Um, these squabbles actually made Lenin um, rock hard since he favored party fractioning. But Malinovsky's fantastic speeches were not necessarily his own since they were edited by Lenin himself and the Okrana. Like Azef, Malinovsky was... Rewarded handsomely for his work, his stipend increased from 50 to 700 rubles per month. Uh, this was definitely worth the Okrana's money since Malinovsky collected detailed personal information on Lenin himself. Uh, both the Okrana and the Bolsheviks trusted Malinovsky, which made it easy for him to seamlessly transfer between the two. Again, living that uh, 
that double life. Malinovsky became the treasurer of the Bolsheviks' uh, principal publication, Pravda, the Russian word for truth, the paper of which Stalin was the editor. Malinovsky used Okrana funds to finance the Bolsheviks' main propaganda outlet. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know what to make of that. Um, at, at one point, Lenin once was dissatisfied with the political direction Pravda was taking, so he, he first sent um, comrade um, Sverdlov, and then second comrade Stalin to St. Petersburg to correct the issue at Pravda. Melanovsky informed the Okrana of, uh, or, or informed the Okrana of Sverdlov and Stalin's travels. They were both arrested and exiled to Siberia. Melanovsky won, Sverdlov and Stalin zero, for now. And we discussed the rumors and eyebrow-raising coincidences concerning Stalin's relationship with the Okrana. Malinovsky's career ended suddenly in 1914 when he was ordered to resign by the interior minister. It was feared that Malinovsky's uh, activities would soon come to light and throw the Okrana into a massive scandal. Some Bolsheviks seemed uh, or sensed something fishier than fish about Malinovsky, but Lenin was like, no, Milanovsky? Maldog? No way he's a spy. After the Bolsheviks took p power in 1917, Okrana files were analyzed and Malinovsky was an Okrana agent all along. A frustrated Lenin paced in his office, like, I, I can't believe it, Malinovsky? Maldog? Bronovsky? Why? How could he do this to me? How, how could I be so, so wrong about you, Malinovsky? Oh, my, my heart. Actually, Malinovsky had been abroad, but returned to the Soviet hornet's nest in um, 1918 to St. Petersburg, then renamed Petrograd, more on that later. But he was arrested, tried, and sentenced to death, and, and immediately uh, treated to a bowl of Leninos for breakfast. These are bullets. Part of your balanced breakfast. Maybe Lenin knew Malinovsky was a spy all along and just used him to play the Okrana. Who knows? The Okrana, again, placed a highly skilled agent into a revolutionary movement and ultimately provided little to no value for the government. The Okrana obtained incredible intelligence on Lenin himself, but the Okrana... Okrana... The Okrana ultimately failed to prevent the Bolsheviks from obtaining power and likewise... Uh, protect themselves and, and as an institution and their lives as individual agents. One group that hasn't been mentioned yet as far as their relationship to, to the Okrana is the Russian armed forces. The Okrana absolutely infiltrated their ranks as the military was the government's most effective weapon against re uh, revolutionary subversion, not the Okrana. The secret police established uh, spy networks to funnel secret reports on the military's political reliability. Interior minister at the time, Vladimir Zhunkovsky, uh, later banned uh, police espionage in the military, which deprived the Okrana of a valuable ally and source of information that would have been potentially life-saving later. Zhukovsky also banned um, recruitment of school-aged children as little Okranics to narc on their classmates. How, how, uh, how cute. 
When war with Germany started in 1914, the Okhrana's mission shifted away from domestic surveillance and towards supporting Russia's war effort. Uh, specifically, this meant the Okhrana engaged in counter-espionage against German spies. Due to war with Germany, St. Petersburg was renamed Petrograd to sound less German. Just a quick note about Interior Minister Vladimir Zhinkovsky. Zhinkovsky was caught up in Stalin's purges in 1937 and arrested. He was sent to a place just south of Moscow called the Butovo Firing Range, where he was executed and tossed into a mass grave on February 21st, 1938, at the age of 72. According to KGB records, over 20,000 people were executed and buried here. Among those 20,000 were people who Stalin deemed th uh, threats. Leftovers from the, from the Tsarist regime, landowners, and foreigners, which included at least one American family. Today, um, Butovo firing range is a, a memorial to the victims of Stalin's purges. At least I hope it's um, still a memorial. Uh, looking at pictures of this place, there is a long mound of grass that clearly protrudes above the rest of the ground where uh, I think the mass grave is. The memorial itself looks actually a lot like the Vietnam War Memorial in Washington, D.C. Um, it's got uh, that walkway that gradually angles below ground with large, polished, reflective rock with the names of the dead carved into the stone. Maybe one of those memorials inspired the other. I, I, I couldn't find the date of which the Butovo Memorial was built. Last thing about Butovo, according to the Baltic Initiative and Network, those convicted and condemned to death were transported in the middle of the night from Moscow to Butovo in food trucks labeled meat. We'll revisit Stalin's purges in greater detail when we explore the NKVD in part four of this series on Russian secret police. So war with Germany did provide some relief on the domestic front for the Okhrana battling revolutionaries, albeit temporarily. It seems like war conjured up Russian patriotism and people rallied, the people actually rallied around Tsar Nicholas, even, even some revolutionaries. To the Russians, the only thing worse than a, than a dumbass Tsar were the Germans. However, the Germans quickly learned that fanning the revolutionary flames in Russia would help them in their war effort. Revolutionaries received German clandestine support to topple the Tsar. Meanwhile, in Petrograd, Nicholas II and his wife, Tsarina uh, Alexandra, had tried five times for a male heir and had four daughters before having their only son and heir to the throne, Tsarevich Alexei. Only one teensy tiny little problem. Alexei inherited the gene for hemophilia. This is a rare disorder where your blood doesn't clot properly. A small injury that for most of us would result in a bruise would cause severe bleeding or worse for somebody with hemophilia. This provided a unique challenge, to say the least, to the Romanov family who were supposed to project power. Instead of doing... Uh, rough-and-tumble boy stuff, Alexei had to be careful because something like falling from the monkey bars could kill him. Oh, <clears throat> and by the way, the Russian people had no clue their Tsarevich had a potentially deadly disease. 
Nicholas and Alexandra were desperate for a cure, or at least a better treatment uh, than Alexei's doctors could provide. Enter the drunken, smelly Siberian peasant sorcerer supposedly endowed with a horse's cock, Rasputin. Rasputin came into the Tsar's lives and almost immediately impressed Nicholas by seemingly reducing the severity of Alexei's malady. How? Well, while performing black magic, Rasputin lightly took away Alexei's doctor-prescribed aspirin. Aspirin is a blood thinner and would be like the last thing you'd want to give somebody with hemophilia. Um, that's not medical advice, though. Consult your own drunken Siberian peasant, uh, I mean doctor, uh, about that. <clears throat> Rasputin got close to the Romanovs. Um, maybe a little too close. His seemingly quick rise to the Tsar's inner circle raised suspicion from all sides, government officials, the people, and especially the Okrana. The Okrana put Rasputin under police surveillance. They kept a close eye on his servants, his comings and goings from the palace, and the people who appeared at the palace requesting Rasputin's audience. In 1915, Rasputin allegedly exposed himself at a restaurant and bragged about having sex with the Tsarina Alexandra. The Okrana were like, wait, What? And a report was submitted to Tsar Nicholas for this. Um, and for this, um, Okrana director Jun- Junkovsky was made to transfer to an army position. Uh, the worse Rasputin seemed to behave, the, you know, the more it pissed off the imperial staff. It, there were many rumors of Rasputin's supposed affairs with Tsarina Alexandra, especially since Nicholas at points wasn't even at the palace and was instead... Condem- uh, condemning, well, probably condemning, really, commanding the Russian army from the German uh, front uh, very poorly. Obviously, these rumors didn't help um, the Romanovs' already um, unsalvageable reputation. But we have to take a side journey and talk about Rasputin's ding-dong. Vodka break. Supposedly, the Mad Monk's Madman meat is preserved in a jar of formaldehyde in St. Petersburg's Erotica Museum, but it may or may not be Rasputin's uh, mystical wizard wang. Check this out. According to an article in The Cult of Weird, which you can read because I've linked it in the description, one of the first objects in a jar alleged to be Rasputin's penis turned out to be a sea cucumber. Now, there is a 12-inch long phallus in a jar in this erotica museum I mentioned. The museum's owner, Dr. Igor Kinyazkin, uh, purchased it in 2000 for $8,000, over thirteen grand in 2022 dollars, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics inflation calculator. Would you buy a pickled pecker for thirteen grand? It was so expensive because Rasputin's penis had developed sort of a cult following. This gets more insane here, but I can't stress enough that this is legend, not necessarily historical fact. Either way, (laughs) it's a great story. So in the 1920s, Rasputin's daughter Maria discovers a group of women in Paris that more or less worship uh, Rasputin's ding-dong. They believe looking at it can cure impotence, and they supposedly hand out pieces of it to people who might need it. Gross. And how disturbing for poor Maria to discover there's a fan club dedicated to her dad's wizarding wand. 
supposedly his supposedly his wiener was cut off by somebody named Felix Yusopov, and it uh, and it made its way to this cult where where they um, again supposedly keep it on ice in a box and only reveal it during a sacred ritual. After after more adventures. The uh, the jar of dick ended up in the erotica museum. It's like it's like the sisterhood of the traveling penis. According to Doctor Kinyazkin, the people uh, the people he purchased it from said it was cut off um, Rasputin's body by quote a fanatical follower and taken to France. It then made its way to his daughter Maria. Uh, weird. But get this, she needed money and supposedly sold it. Dang it, Maria, you're flush with cash. How did you make all that dough? I sold my dad's dick. I'm sorry, what? Now, Dmitry Kosorotov, the guy who performed Rasputin's autopsy, noted that his genitals were in fact there and intact. Dr. Kinyazkin says, quote, I am 99% sure it is real, end quote. And that's probably a comforting thing to tell yourself when you've spent thousands of dollars on what might be a jar with a gooey duck in it. Look up gooey ducks. They look exactly like penises. So that was the tale of Peter Piper's pickled pair of pickled peckers. It might be the real thing. Probably isn't. It might not even be a penis but the cult of weird um, article raises an important question if it is a penis and it is not Rasputin's whose is it gentlemen um, double check and make sure yours isn't missing okay was Rasputin an Okrana agent probably not but maybe he should have been because Rasputin for sure contributed to the fall of the Tsarist monarchy in March 1917, after several days of rioting in Petrograd, Tsar Nicholas II abdicated the throne, ending over 300 years of Romanov rule, starting with Michael Romanov at the end of the Time of Troubles. Some sense of power and stability was achieved by the provisional government that had recently appointed new ministers from the State Duma. This effectively marked the end of the Okhrana. The Petrograd Soviet demanded the Okhrana be disbanded. Telegrams were sent to agents in and outside of Russia conveying their abolition, which was uh, reported in the papers as well. Um, and just like that, the Okrana and the gendarmes more or less disappeared overnight. Former agents tried their best to hide the fact that they'd been part of the Tsar's secret police force. They either had to go underground or abroad. Some of those that stayed ended up fighting in the Russian Civil War on the side of the, or on the uh, pro-Tsarist side, also known as the Whites. Many of those who were arrested were shot by the secret police force we'll cover in part three, the Bolshevik Cheka. The, the provisional government set up a commission to evaluate the effectiveness of the Okrana. The commission discovered scandals and mishaps associated with Azef uh, Bogrov and Melanovsky, particularly with the murder of Okrana chief Colonel Karpov, who was blown up in his own apartment with an explosive placed underneath a table by a man who Karpov himself had released from prison to become an Okrana agent. Oops. 
the commission also, or the commission was also interested in the agent provocateurs. Various police chiefs insisted their undercover agents were providing political intelligence and not uh, aiding revolutionary goals. Former Okrana agents, however, told a very different story. Many had to partake or, or uh, perpetrate some level of activity to remain believable to the revolutionaries. Uh, none could be passive observers. Therefore, many took part in assassinations, as, as you saw, rallied workers uh, for strikes, and fanned, generally fanned the flames of revolution. Uh, furthermore, since Okrana agents were paid generous bonuses for busting printing presses, some agents set up their own illegal printing presses using police money, busted the press, and collected a cool profit. The commission concluded that the Okrana completely undermined themselves and the government they served to protect. Some of the former chiefs were asked, Hey, how else did you guys combat revolutionary groups other than infiltration with um, undercover cops? The chiefs were like... No answer could be given. The Okrana's tactic of infiltration was not unique to policing, since other cops around the world uh, did the same thing. But the scale of which the Okrana operated and in the context of revolutionary heat were unique uh, situations faced by the uh, Okrana. Uh, the Okrana also allowed some very talented and effective officers to become rich and powerful, much to their own organization's doom. Other spy techniques included going through incoming mail, which we talked about a bit with the third section. The Okrana had a, a special machine to open envelopes, uh, replace seals, and photographically wash out invisible, e uh, invisible ink hiding between the visibly printed letters. Revolutionaries did make use of codes when communicating via letter. So Okrana cryptographer like um, uh, Ivan uh, Zybin Develop methods to encrypt police communications by creating ciphers based on biblical scripture or love letters, but unfortunately they didn't have internet access. The commission did amass some interesting confessions from former agents. One former agent kept insisting that his wife and children were poor and destitute without him, and therefore should be released from prison. However, the commission, does, uh, uh, under, um, the commission uncovered that although various um, extortion campaigns... Uh, um, that he perpetrated as a cop made him a millionaire. For Chief Gerasimov, um, former Chief Gerasimov said, while facing the commission, quote, when I left the service, I changed completely and saw that in serving the system, I committed a crime. I am ashamed at having worked there. And recently I've almost become a revolutionary myself, end quote. Um, Gerasimov eventually moved abroad and published memoirs, of which he made no such statements um, of his regret. It was all for show. The void left by the Okrana was replaced by a light police force called the Counter Espionage Bureau of the, Pet of the um, Petrograd Military District headed by Colonel Nikitin, and was solely devoted to military counterintelligence. They couldn't exactly make a concrete distinction between German espionage and Russian revolutionary groups because the Germans were financing subversive Russian forces. This distracted and weakened the provisional government, which was also having a difficult time competing for ultimate authority with the Petrograd Soviet. 
when Nikitin did uncover German spies, they were often forcefully released from prison by revolutionary mobs, which convinced Nikitin that Berlin was working hard to undermine the provisional government. Ultimately, military counter-espionage did little to stop Lenin and the Bolsheviks from taking over Petrograd in October 1917 and, and establishing the Soviet Union. Uh, pour a little bit more vodka here. We're uh, basically at the end, but I feel like I could take another vodka break. Cheers. So that was a lot of information. So let's recap. The end of Ivan the Terrible's rule ushered in a period of political chaos within Russia. The Romanov dynasty started with the coronation of Michael Romanov and set a 300-year course of that family's rule. The czars were no strangers to political police. One precursor to the Okhrana was the third section, which was set up following the Decemberist revolt. The Okhrana probably helped move revolution along more than hampered it. Okhrana agents often took part in assassinations of their own officials as part of infiltration campaigns. Rasputin maybe had a horse's cock that you can see in the St. Petersburg Erotica Museum. The year 1917 saw immense change in Russia, including the abolition of the Okhrana. Now, to compare the Okhrana and the Oprichniki is sort of like comparing apples and oranges. The Okhrana used more modern and trickier infiltration techniques and employed um, technology to decipher messages. They also set up fake organizations to rally factory workers. The Oprichniki, on the other hand, employed brutal terror and torture to keep Ivan the Terrible's subjects in line. The Oprichniki were really more representative of medieval depravity. With the Okhrana, we start to see the foundation being laid for Russia's future secret police forces and in terms of scale and adoption of technology. Outright terror seems to take a back seat with the Okhrana, despite some of their cruelty. This is going to change with Soviet secret police, where we see a horrifying combination of terror and technology employed on an industrial scale. Next time on Secret Police, we look at the Cheka, the first Soviet secret police force unleashed upon the Russian people by Vladimir Lenin and the Bolsheviks. I, I got to thank you for for giving me your time and your ears uh, to tell you about the Okhrana. Uh, I, I do hope you enjoyed this one and, and my butchery of Russian names. Uh, if you if you did like it, go ahead and slap five stars on the show on Spotify and elsewhere. Uh, give me a rate um, and review it on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. These, those ratings really help the show gain more transpar- transparency by uh, pleasing the algorithm gods. So that would be much appreciated if you if you would please thank you i only have uh, an instagram account for this show uh, you can follow it at secret police podcast and feel free to dm me with questions comments and feedback i'd love to i'd love to hear from you guys and know how uh, how things are going so far so until next time please if you're going to join our secret police organization don't undermine your own employer it doesn't look good on a resume all right that's enough listening to my voice Agents dismissed.
Comrade Lennon, I got something that'll really brighten your day. It's even better than a dead czar. Okay, listen. I know you're not exactly known for your sense of humor, but I got a joke for you. Uh, what? No, wait, no, wait, wait, wait. I'll get the hell out of your office in a second. Okay, listen. Why did Lennon always mark the names of traitors with a question mark at the end? Because they questioned marks. Get it? <laughs> oh, man, that kills me. Uh, what's, um, what's with the gun? <laughs> <laughs>